Hi everyone, thanks for joining me today. My name is Steve Reefman and I'm a National Board Certified Elementary School teacher and author in Santa Monica, California. During my 24 year career, I've worked to create an approach that engages the whole child and empowers students to achieve academic excellence, build strong character, develop lasting work habits and social skills, and take charge of their health and wellness. In this podcast, I'll be sharing strategies, stories, tips and resources that will help you inspire and empower your students and improve your teaching. In this episode, I'll be talking about one of the most powerful instructional strategies that we as elementary teachers have at our disposal, and perhaps one of the most underrated, movement. Specifically, I'll be describing why movement is such an effective classroom strategy, and then I'll be sharing my five favorite, most user-friendly activities that enable students to learn language arts concepts through movement. First, a little background. About 10 or 12 years ago, I started hearing more and more about brain research and its implications for improving student learning in the classroom. And I started reading everything I could about different teaching strategies that would help students learn better based on this brain research. And as I did my reading, I discovered lots and lots of strategies that were recommended by the research. The list is a long and varied one. But as I tried to bring them back to my classroom and experimented with them, I found that three particular types of strategies stood out to me as unusually engaging and powerful. Those involving movement, music, and storytelling. And I refer to this collection of strategies as the three game changers. I found that children simply reacted differently to activities that included elements of movement, music, and storytelling. Even when compared to other research-based effective practices, these three game changers offered unparalleled novelty, interest, stimulation, excitement, and joy. As a result, the kids became emotionally involved in these activities, paid more attention, remembered better, and in short, learned better. During the time when I was discovering the brain research, I was at a physical education conference, and over the course of a week, I had the pleasure of attending a series of sessions led by a man named Jeff Habig, who captures this idea well by explaining that emotions drive attention and attention drives learning. So that one of the main things we can do as teachers to increase student learning is to increase the emotional involvement, the emotional connection that kids feel with academic content. And that's what I found that these three game changers do. They resonate with kids on an emotional level, they engage them deeply, and enable them to make a personal connection with academic content. Consequently, the activities capture students' attention and lead to higher quality learning. Activities that incorporate movement, music, and storytelling also improve class morale, build self-esteem and enthusiasm for learning, and increase feelings of student connectedness to the class and to one another. This bonding effect is important. Upon arriving in our classrooms, many of the kids we teach will have already been fortunate enough in their lives to experience the happiness and satisfaction that come from being a valued member of a successful team. Playing Little League Baseball, for example, or maybe performing in a youth orchestra or acting in a drama club. For kids who haven't, a classroom can provide the same type of bonding experience and activities that include movement, music, and storytelling can contribute to this outcome. 
In addition to the numerous academic and social-emotional benefits these activities offer, they're an absolute blast, turning potentially dry academic lessons into engaging multimodal experiences that kids will remember for a long time. And during these special moments, the kids are having so much fun learning that school may take on the feel of summer camp. And at their best, these activities create situations where the kids are completely focused and well-behaved, work with purpose, and learn enthusiastically. And as elementary school teachers, I'm not sure how we can beat that. Another benefit is that most of these activities take little or no time to prepare for. Now that I've introduced the benefits of using movement, music, and storytelling in the classroom, I'd like to narrow the focus only to activities that include movement. In my view, there are two main ways that we can incorporate movement into our academic instruction. I call them level one and level two, and they're both very good, but I strive for level two as much as possible. With level one, we're simply adding movement to what would otherwise be a sedentary activity. For example, let's imagine that the kids are sitting at their desks working with markers and small dry erase boards to work on their editing skills. I write down a series of sentences on the board, the kids copy them, they correct the mistakes, and then we go over the sentences together to see if we found all the errors. And let's assume that it takes 20 minutes to work through these sentences. If I ask the kids to stop halfway through and move to a different location to finish the other half of the sentences, they are more likely, it is more likely that they will learn more than if I had them remain seated for the full 20 minutes, probably because of a combination of factors. First, maybe the novelty of moving to a new spot increases student alertness. Maybe the transition time to get to a new spot gives everyone a needed break. Maybe the new frame of reference provided by the second location, what authors Tracy Langle and Mike Kuzala call, a, call an environmental address, offers students a different context that aids their learning. If we'd like to take it a step further, we can create activities where the meaning of a concept is embedded within a given movement, and that impacts learning even more powerfully. With these types of activities, we're not simply adding movement to what would otherwise be a sedentary lesson. In this case, the activity itself features a type of movement that either represents, matches, or embodies the meaning of the content students are expected to learn. So, when the kids are moving around and participating in the activity, they're actually bringing the content to life. To highlight the difference between level one and level two, I'd like to share with you what I call the banana pancake analogy. I remember way back when I was a kid, the first time I tried banana pancakes and they were delicious. That was largely due to the fact that banana was built into the batter and I could taste both banana and pancake in every bite. A few weeks later, I went to a restaurant, I saw banana pancakes on the menu and I got very excited. But this time, when the food came and I ate it, I remember being disappointed because this time, the bananas were on top of the stack, not mixed into the batter. My breakfast that day tasted different than it did the first time. It was still good, but it wasn't great. So this analogy, of course, um, is meant to highlight the fact that building the bananas into the batter is like level two, 
concept embedded movement while simply adding it to the top of the pancakes would be more like level one. Adding movement to what would otherwise be a sedentary activity, both good, but level two having far more impact. I'd now like to share with you my five favorite concept embedded movement activities that help students learn language arts concepts. The first one I'd like to share is always the first one that I share when I present this information because it's a tribute to Ellie Goldman and Denise Chavone, two presenters that first introduced me to concept embedded movement and the activity that they shared is called the synonym antonym sidestep. I was so excited when I first learned this activity that over the next few years I did everything I could to find, adapt, or create as many of these types of activities as I could. In advance of this activity, you need to prepare about 20 index cards with a word pair written on each. And the words can be very simple ones. Our goal here is not necessarily to challenge kids with vocabulary, it's to help them learn the difference between synonyms and antonyms. So possible synonym pairs could include great and excellent, happy and cheerful, while possible antonym pairs could include up and down, hot and cold. Begin the activity by having your students stand in two lines, one on each side of the room and face the center. The middle of the room needs to be open because the kids will be moving through this area. I like to place the stack of index cards face down on the floor near the front wall. The first person in each line walks to the pile and these two kids work together to select a card and read their word pair to the group. The rest of the kids slide down one place every time somebody comes to the front to get a card. After the two kids in the front of the room read the word pair, they need to make a decision. They need to decide if the words on the card are synonyms or antonyms. If the words on the card are synonyms, the partners face each other, grab hands, and sidestep through the middle of the room and go back to the end of their respective lines. If the words are antonyms, the kids go back to back, facing opposite directions, grab hands, and sidestep through the center and back to the end of their lines. As the game progresses, the idea is that the kids will associate the term synonym with the word same because they're facing the same direction as their partner and the term antonym with the word opposite because they're facing the opposite direction. I repeat this point throughout the game. To keep the kids who are waiting in line engaged in the activity and to provide valuable reinforcement of these concepts, I have everyone clap and chant either synonym or antonym each time a new pair of students sidesteps through the middle of the room. The second activity also helps students learn about synonyms and antonyms, and it's called the jumping game. It's a variation of a West African dance that I learned at the same PE conference that I mentioned earlier. It's one that I go to every year. Once I learned the dance, my friend Stacy and I started to brainstorm ideas, and very quickly we created a new way for students to learn synonyms and antonyms. The creation of this activity serves as an example of how quickly an idea can form once teachers begin thinking about how we can improve instruction through the lens of movement. Students play the jumping game in pairs, and if there happens to be an odd number of students in my class, I will step in and be a partner so that everybody has one. The kids should stand a few feet away from their partners, and there should be adequate space between all the pairs. I then announce the go word. Next, 
the kids jump up and down on two feet twice and then stick out one leg. It's almost like playing rock, paper, scissors with feet. If the partners show opposite legs, they think of as many antonyms as possible for the go word. If they show legs from the same side of their bodies, they brainstorm synonyms. Sometimes there's confusion about what exactly it means to show same side legs or opposite legs. If I'm showing my right leg and my partner showing her right leg, does that mean it's the same side, even though our legs meet at a bit of a diagonal? Or does it mean that if I show my left leg and my partner shows her right leg, is that the same side because it's next to the same wall, for example? Either can be okay. This is something we simply discuss with our class at the outset so that everybody understands we're being consistent and then we can move ahead with the game. Assume, for example, that the first go word is mean. The kids jump once, jump twice, and show their feet. To ensure that the kids move at the same speed as their partners, I call out jump once, jump twice, show. Those groups showing feet from the same side of their bodies would brainstorm synonyms such as cruel, rotten, and unkind. Those groups showing feet from opposite sides of their bodies would brainstorm antonyms such as friendly, kind, and nice. I generally give the groups about 30 seconds to think of their synonyms and antonyms before bringing everyone together for a quick whole class share in which I check for accuracy, reinforce the meaning of the two terms, and compliment students demonstrating excellent word choice. You may discover that the synonym antonym sidestep and the jumping game provide all the instruction your students will need to grasp the concept of synonyms and antonyms. As is the case with many other strategies that involve movement, these two activities may accomplish more in 15 minutes than a week's worth of paper and pencil work. Don't get me wrong, paper and pencil work is important, but if we can accomplish better results, reduce time spent on paper and pencil tasks, address more learning modalities, increase class bonding and student self-esteem, and have more fun in the process, that is a win-win for everybody. The third activity I'd like to share is called reading around the room. One of the most important academic goals that we have for elementary students involves reading comprehension. Yet comprehension often suffers when kids read too quickly or fail to follow punctuation signals. To address these issues, my students and I for years have loved using a variation of a strategy suggested in Marcia Tate's Worksheets Don't Grow Dendrites and Patricia Wolf's Brain Matters. Students start by standing in a large circle with a common text in their hands. On the go signal, everyone reads aloud in unison from a predetermined starting point. While reading, everyone slowly walks forward. At every comma, the kids stop walking and pause in their reading for one second before resuming their walking and reading. At every period, exclamation point, or question mark, the kids stop and pause in their reading for two seconds before resuming their walking and reading. You will, of course, need to add other movements or features should you encounter different types of punctuation. But the fact that the whole class does this together provides both a strong physical and vocal structure and helps children who may struggle following these rules on their own. During one of our first reading workshop units each fall, my students and I use this activity just for a few minutes at the end of each period and it helps tremendously 
with the kid's ability to read with fluency, volume, and expression. Even just three minutes per day for a couple weeks makes a huge difference in reading proficiency. The fourth activity is known as the slouch game. And if you type in my name and slouch game on YouTube, you can see a short video with kids demonstrating how to play. There's another video on my Teaching Kids channel that shows how to play the jumping game. The slouch game is sure to become one of your kids' favorites, and it begins with everyone seated in chairs. The purpose of the game is to help kids distinguish between proper nouns, which begin with capital letters because they name specific people, places, and things, and common nouns, which don't require capitals because they do not refer to specific people, places, and things. During each round of the game, I call out a noun. If I say a proper noun, the kids approximate the height of a capital letter by sitting up super tall in their chairs. Kids view this as sitting very properly. If I say a common noun, the kids approximate the height of a lowercase letter by slouching. And of course, the old joke is that this part of the game tends to come naturally for many children. Kids love the novelty of this game because teachers and parents are constantly telling them to sit up straight, and here, they're required to slouch as part of the game. In the beginning of the game, I'll alternate between common nouns and their corresponding proper nouns in order to establish an easy-to-follow pattern, build student confidence, and give the kids a nice mini-workout. For example, I may start with the following words. City, and the kids slouch. Los Angeles, they would sit tall. School, slouch. Roosevelt School, sit tall. Team, slouch. Dodgers, sit tall. Once I've successfully created a false sense of security in the room, I break the pattern so there is no rhyme or reason to the order of my nouns. During this time, I can quickly assess which students may need more follow-up with these concepts, and that's another advantage of many of these movement-based activities. They provide an easy, non-threatening way to determine which kids may need more follow-up with certain concepts. For children who struggle differentiating these types of nouns, the good news is that they're able to correct their mistakes easily and quickly, since they can look around the room and observe what the other students are doing. I don't like to use the term peer pressure, but there's a definite awareness of what's happening in the room that helps everyone be more successful as the game progresses. Consider the slouch game when students are learning other capitalization rules as well. Having students adjust their posture in this manner and approximate the heights of capital and lowercase letters with their bodies adds a kinesthetic dimension to our instruction that may make an important difference for those struggling to grasp the meaning of these types of nouns. The fifth and final movement-based activity I'd like to share today is known as the contraction blues. It's one type of whole class letter game that's played with students holding up cards containing letters of the alphabet. One year in my school's workroom, a teacher left behind a set of laminated cards cut into the shape of little bears, and on each piece was a letter of the alphabet. And upon discovering that this set was up for grabs, I could not believe my good fortune. I don't know who left them for me, but I am forever grateful. If you have 26 students in your class, then to play the contraction blues, each student would be responsible for one letter. If you have fewer than 26, then one student or a couple students could be responsible for more than one letter. And if you have more than 26 students, then a couple kids could share letters, or you can create a second set, or even just a second set of the vowels or other commonly used letters.
Many children have difficulty with contractions because they either put the apostrophe in the wrong place or they omit it entirely. As a preface to the game, I introduce the word contract and emphasize that when something contracts, it gets smaller or shorter. I then call up a student who's wearing a short sleeve shirt to the front of the room and have him or her extend their arm straight out. With my fingers, I measure the length of the student's arm from the shoulder to the elbow. Next, I'll ask the student to flex their bicep, and you can imagine the excitement this causes. Kids go crazy for this because in schools, kids don't usually have the opportunity to flex their bicep muscles publicly to their adoring classmates. Even though most kids will look to see the height of the bicep at its peak, I focus on how the contraction of the bicep makes the length of the muscle shorter, and once again, I emphasize how when something contracts, it gets shorter. I also tell my students how many years ago, Major League Baseball was thinking of contracting. That means they were thinking of taking away two of the teams so that the list of teams would be shorter. I also mentioned that the same thing happens with words. And to bring that concept to life, we play this game called the Contraction Blues. The Contraction Blues uses the letter cards to help kids better understand that when two words are contracted, one or more letters are taken away and the resulting word is shorter than the two original words. For example, I'll start by calling out the words is and not. The students holding those letter cards come to the front of the room and standing shoulder to shoulder, spell out those words while leaving a space between them. One lucky volunteer known as the contractor then springs into action, determining which unlucky card holder needs to sit back down because they're in possession of the letter that's dropped when is and not contractive form isn't, and escorting that person off the stage. Naturally, kids love being the contractor. They love tapping someone on the shoulder and politely, and I emphasize politely, informing the person that their services are for the time being no longer required. When choosing a contractor, I'll often choose the student holding the Q or the X or the Z or some other letter that's unlikely to come up when I call words that are gonna be contracted. So this keeps everybody involved in the activity. The student holding the letter O after the contractor does their thing sadly returns to their spot in the audience. I strongly recommend keeping tissues nearby to help the exiting student deal with the emotional pain of being contracted and cope with what we call, you guessed it, the contraction blues. The kids love to ham it up and we have fun playing up the drama. Even though the sadness is artificial, the novelty of this activity and the emotional connection the kids make with the content is real, and their attention to the central point I'm trying to make is strong. Once the holder of the letter O is back in the audience, the contractor steps in between the N and the T and forms an apostrophe with their hand, while the holders of the I and the S move closer to the others to eliminate the space that was used to separate the two original words. This physical shortening is crucial. Now, the class has a chance to see the contracted word isn't with the apostrophe in the right place and with the resulting contraction physically shorter than the two words that made it. I drive this point home about the shortening of the words repeatedly so the kids understand the true meaning of the word contraction. We'll then proceed through a few more examples so more children can have a turn coming up to the front of the room and so the kids can see this shortening principle 
reinforced. I like to start with simple examples such as I'm and your, and then proceed to more complicated contractions such as she'll and won't. These letter cards can of course be used for a variety of spelling games as well, though none tend to be as emotional as this one. We have reached the end of this episode of the Teach the Whole Child podcast. Thanks again for joining me. I hope you found the information interesting and useful. If you ever want to reach out, I am always happy to connect. Through my website, steveriefman.com, you can shoot me an email. I'm on Twitter, at Steve Reifman, and on Facebook, you can contact me through my Teaching the Whole Child Facebook page. Thanks.